Hello and welcome to Why Bother Podcast. I'm Mark Mayo, a journalist fascinated by the fringes of our mainstream culture and the sort of people that occupy them. During this series, I'll be speaking to some of Britain's smallest political parties to ask them what motivates them to dedicate time and energy into a cause that can often only be rewarded by a grinding election, a handful of votes and a lost deposit. My focus is not so much the policy of these parties, but the people, the culture and the position that they are striving for within our political system. These are tales of camaraderie and morality from those who aim to turn hopeless causes into reality. In this episode, I spoke to the Liberal Party. The term liberal is startlingly infrequent in British political discourse, much to the contrast of our American cousins. But in the past 40 years, those identifying as liberals have played a key role in determining the outcome of UK general elections, be that through the SDP or the Lib Dems. Now, however, the movement has been pushed to the fringes of mainstream policy making. I spoke to Liberal Party leader and councillor in Liverpool, Steve Radford, to discuss the state of liberalism, the party's roots, and its links to the US Democrats and UKIP. Uh, councillor Steve Radford, uh, been a Liberal Party councillor for Tubrook for approximately 37 years, and um, I'm president of the Liberal Party, which is the nearest um, description to being a leader of the Liberal Party. And what encouraged you to join the party? Um, well, I joined the Liberal Party, like many of my friends at school did. Uh, actually, when I was 14, I was brought up in a free church tradition, a, uh, a Methodist United Reformed Church chapel. And we were given a lot of lead to take an interest in political and social and economic affairs as part of our social responsibility ethos. And um, whilst some members of my, my part, uh, family were from a Labour tradition, I, I found the Liberal Party was talking about values that I resonated to. And the more I studied history and the Gladstonian tradition of emphasis on uh, free trade, internationalism, against aggressive wars abroad, um, then liberal economists like Keynes arguing for positive government action to reduce unemployment and poverty, then the Liberal Party just seemed to be a natural home that resonates to my values. So I contacted the local Liberals when I was 14, and um, I joined up as one of the largest young Liberal branches in Farnham in Surrey, and I've been an active Liberal ever since. How was it, uh, describe for me then the, the, the sort of atmosphere, the situation of being in a, a young Liberals party at that age then? Oh, it was quite good fun. It was a time when um, the Liberal Party was making great mileage, particularly against the Tory heartlands. And I remember the Farnham constituency. We got the Tory majority down to 6,000. And we got what was the Waverley Council um, down to it being almost a hung council. So it was quite an exciting time. And, um, I mean, I my first election campaign was in a district that's based on Elstead Village and the rural areas to the south of Farnham. And um, it was quite amusing. We had a Conservative county councillor who actually wrote to the newspaper saying it was disgraceful the Liberal Party contesting his, his, his election seat. The seat had been um, essentially Conservative for 100 years and we were wasting the public's money by having an election. And his name was Count, um, Colonel Redhead. 
uh, well, we re-nickname him in local parlance as Colonel Big Head, who didn't believe in an election. <laughs> um, a bit like Donald Trump, really. And uh, we, we won the seat after a recount with an incredibly small majority. We, we took a seat off the Conservatives that had been Conservative, I think, probably between, be, between then and the Corn Laws. Wow. And what sort of people were you finding coming over to vote for you? I suppose that maybe it's different then and now, but what sort of people, you know, is it people who don't vote, Tories, Labour? It was, a, well, there was no such thing as a Labour Party in West Surrey. Um, the Labour Party is a bit like being a member of the Marxist Communist League of China. Um, it was a rural community, some elements of suburban townships. And um, I'm going to be honest, the, the liberal tradition were mainly from people from the free churches. And our, one of the Liberal parish councillors was actually the Free Church Minister. And it was quite amusing because I remember on election night, uh, we were looking at the polling list and thinking, who else hasn't voted? And we discovered there were six ladies from a Baptist nursing home um, who hadn't voted and all our cars were out. So I think um, Reg, who doubled up as the local undertaker, um, got the hearst out and we drove the hearst up to the um the old people's home to collect the six baptists who quite happily sat in the back of the hearst and popped off to the polling station and um it was very much a case of people knew what liberals were there were a lot of old people i actually remember canvassing one guy who said he wasn't going to vote for the liberal party because lloyd george promised him um an, an acre of land and a cow and he never got the cow. Um, so there was a real rural working class tradition of liberal support, plus younger professionals and people who were quite despondent about the Edward Heath government. I mean, Edward Heath uh, was a wrecking check to local government, destroying local councils and amalgamating them and creating great, enormous, wasteful councils covering mega districts with no common identity. So it was a real reaction to the Conservatives at that point. And uh, there was a liberal tradition in the area. Um, that was some quite, quite novel days. I remember getting chased off a, a farm by a Conservative member party, the member party with a shotgun, who thought liberals were as nearest thing to the Communist Party. Um, so it was, it was an interesting election as a taster. And fast forward to now then, as we have, I, I suppose, looking at your um, the places where you have seats and sort of, activity going on I suppose that sort of rural working class tradition is kind of being maintained in that obviously there's Liverpool and and places like that but also there's kind of a Cornwall um you know sort of uh what's the word I'm looking for um basis that you have a bit of a Cornwall base there's a bit of a North Yorkshire base as well how does that kind of fare with the sort of people you're attracting now well exactly I mean to be honest it does show the old Luke's Liberal Party were very much in in the rural communities but the people in rural communities who weren't um, tapping and kowtowing to the local lords um, or those lords who were more progressive minded um, there is still a long tradition and it, there is an overlap between the areas which are sort of essentially very working class rural working class areas where the Labour Party's never made a pre- premise never made its presence felt. Um, I remember when John Pardo, who I thought would have been an excellent Liberal leader, um, made the case for a national minimum wage back in the mid-60s, and the Labour Party said, oh, well, if people don't belong to a trade union, they don't deserve a minimum wage. Um, so there's been a wrong Liberal tradition in some of these areas, and the Liberal Party's still going. I mean, the sadness for ourselves and the big frustration 
I get it here, even here in Liverpool, is people um, get the Liberal Party confused with the defectors who call themselves social and liberal Democrats or liberal Democrats or various other resurrections. Um, and this is one of our biggest problems. Um, and actually, you know, let's be upfront about it. Nick Clegg has damaged the liberal brand that will probably take a decade to get clear of. Um, not because you've gone into a coalition. Liberals have often gone into coalitions. I remember when David Steele did a partnership deal, not a coalition with the Labour Party, and agreed a common programme. And liberal leaders on spokesmen were consulted over government measures to keep a Labour minority going. There's been liberal governments in the past that worked with the Labour Party. But I think Nick Clegg have destroyed the brand when he jumped into bed with the Conservatives and actually not get, got nothing meaningful out of it. That was the real issue. And apart from having a few titles and some ministerial jags, I don't think the public got the idea that Lib Dems got anything. I mean, let's be honest, let's take the contrast. The DUP with far smaller numbers of MPs, well, everybody know what the DUP's got for its constituents. Um, what a contrast to the way the Lib Dems deal with their coalition negotiations. Yeah, that's the thing with, with the Lib Dems. And you're right to say that they have dominated the sort of liberal identity in the last few years. And I suppose as well, a lot of it, in not necessarily in this country, but in America as well, the term liberal has effectively been weaponized by people on the right to almost mean communist is kind of what certain people in like the Republican Party, for example, mean for liberals. So when it comes to, to you guys and where you find your identity, how hard do you find it to to sort of stake your claim as to what the true, because liberal is such a broad term, isn't it? How do you find that you guys well, try actually, to make your claim for it? I really like that you mentioning the American liberals because in America, I mean, I would certainly be an enthusiastic member of the Democrat Party. The liberal tradition in the United States has often put an emphasis on redistribution of wealth. It's discussed things like land reform, wealth redistribution, and it's also discussed the need to break up monopolies to benefit competition, very much in the liberal tradition. And uh, that's a, a tradition in America that many people would describe liberals in America we would feel totally comfortable with. Yeah, and I suppose there's another party in, or sort of kind of party that's in the US that I suppose maybe people might think that you have something in common with, and that's the libertarians, because there is this sense with, particularly with you guys being kind of Eurosceptic and then having, you know, the liberal sort of side of it as well, that there is a kind of, would you say there is a kind of libertarian side to you? Well, um, I've often described liberals as being pragmatic libertarians. I certainly don't feel comfortable at all with a laissez-faire attitude. We just let the free market run riot and people put up with the consequences. And if people don't have income, they don't have equality in the marketplace. So I don't feel a lot of affinity with the libertarians. And I think some of their outlook is creates dysfunctional societies. If we wanted to create a society where there was no education, there was no public health, there was no redistribution of wealth, and people just fend for themselves, that is not a practical society. So I don't feel an affinity with the libertarians if I be candid, but 
the healthier side of liberalism is a cynicism of centralization of power. It's one of the reasons why we're very cynical about the way the European Commission operates. Having an organization that can't deliver audited accounts in 30 years is probably not the sort of organization I want to be signing up to and paying my taxes to. And yes, we've got the instincts of questioning centralization of power. We've got the instincts to question um, the lack of competition. We've got the instincts to say government's got limitations. But the starting point is socially progressive governments. They're actually there to create an environment where people can best themselves and recognize we don't live as isolated individuals. We live in communities. So I think there's quite a big difference between liberals and libertarians, um, even though some of the instincts may be underlying. You're listening to Why Bother Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at why underscore bother underscore pod. Getting on to the Euroscepticism then, because that is obviously quite a big barrier between yourself and other people who call themselves liberals. And I suppose, is, is that the most difficult thing? And how do you try and get around that sense that as soon as people hear the word liberal, they assume now that there is a sort of pro-EU stance within them, even though, you know, obviously with Brexit being voted in, there, there must be a quite significant amount of people out there who are Eurosceptic, but not kind of UKP, basically. There is a big swell of people who are, as you say, progressive, but Eurosceptic, but kind of trying to tap into those people and trying to bring those people in must be very difficult. It, it is, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think the public finds it hard to differentiate between liberal and liberal Democrat. But as soon as we said we supported the referendum and we supported the people's decision being respected, it creates a clear divide between those people who belong to the liberal Democrats or whatever they call themselves this week party. And I think you're absolutely spot on. It is a, cl- a clear water divide. I think the political instincts are clear also divide in that that we do believe the United Kingdom is one of the wealthiest economies. We do believe that we should be in the world marketplace. And we do believe that public money should be accountable. Uh, Those are quite clear liberal principles. I mean, it's very interesting. I think one of the reasons why the Lib Dems have done so disastrously at the last general election is, if you think about it, Many of the rural or semi-rural communities of Wales and the West Country, uh, which have been the backbone of the Liberal Party, even when the Labour Party was at its uh, ascendancy, they were the very areas which were most Eurocritical. They're the very areas the Lib Dems betrayed. And I think there is a large number of people. I've met a lot of people in UKIP. I think UKIP is a very broad brush coalition. There are many people in UKIP, like Alan Sked, who was an ex-liberal parliamentary candidate, whose philosophy was liberalism in politics and liberalism as in competition. And there is an element of people who did join UKIP or supported UKIP who were anti-Europe, basically socially liberal and economically liberal. There's a large portion of those people who I think have felt disenfranchised when UKIP was hijacked by the far right. So I think there is a large number of people who went to UKIP, both as members and as electors, who would fall in the liberal tradition, 
who actually in the past have previously voted Lib Dem or Liberal. And there is a big audience out there, and it, the difficulty is knowing how to necessarily reach them. But during the last general election, particularly our colleagues in the West Country in Cornwall, we um, had a lot of those type of liberal Eurocynics join the Liberal Party and stand as Liberals. And it was one of the big growth areas for the Liberal Party, particularly in Cornwall. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask, actually, is how, practically speaking, how do you get your message out? Do you kind of focus on sort of social media approach and old-fashioned kind of councillors that people recognise approach, leaflets, knocking on doors? What is your sort of preference for, for getting your message out there? I'm still a great believer in knocking on doors. I'm a great believer in leaflets, which are punchy and talk to people's issues of the day. But I'm not a great IT savvy guy. I'm probably a bit Neanderthal when it comes to IT. But I am using um, Facebook and some of the Facebook politics sites to try and get our message out. And, you know, this is why interviews like this one, I'm more than happy to uh, accept the invitation. And it's a great opportunity. And in some ways, it means it's not controlled by the sort of state-run media, which just deals with five political parties in Parliament and nobody else exists. So we're grateful. I think I'll also say LBC did a terrific broadcast on the smaller parties, and I think ourselves um, made a good contribution, and we, that raised our profile a lot. So social media, radio, but the more traditional methods of uh, knocking on the doors and canvassing. One of our strengths is not necessarily our large numbers. It's not the, the money we don't have behind us. But we do have still a strong liberal tradition of community leaders as local councillors, city councillors like myself, Joe and uh, Billy here in Chewbrook. We have the uh, other councillors in the areas like Gateshead and North Yorkshire and a lot of people in, in the rural areas of parish councillors. Um, it really does act to us giving a, a pragmatic edge to politics. And it's not just theory. It's, you know, looking at creating the village hall, looking at the food hampers scheme looking at creating a sense of community and leading that community, which are all very much in that sort of tradition of social liberalism, of believing in competition, believing in enterprise, but also believing in community enterprise and community communications. There's a great leadership opportunity for liberals uh, today uh, at, at the local level. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about as well the as he's kind of said there about state broadcasters and everything, when it comes to particularly election cycles, because I imagine getting your voice out in the traditional media during, you know, fallow periods, during non-election times, particularly after the last election when a lot of people wanted politics to go away for a little bit, um, it, it must be difficult to, to sort of get your voice out there. And, and when elections do come around, how do you find the, you know, for the 2019 election, for example, how were your... Where were your opportunities to talk talk to the wider public? Well, going to be honest, in the northwest, we were really frustrated, despite the fact we made a big increase in the number of candidates. We didn't get much media coverage from the TV or the local journals like the Echo. I think they were really quite dismissive of, uh, of the Liberal contribution in an unreasonable way. But conversely, uh, my colleagues in Cornwall got a very high profile. They I think they had to make some very serious complaints to the BBC about um, a Cornwall debate was going to exclude them. But having got included, um, they certainly picked up a lot of traction in the Cornish press, in the media, 
um, discussing the difference between liberal and liberal Democrat, which is quite funny, really, because we had loads of liberal Democrats saying, oh, people were voting for you by confusion. And at the same time, the Lib Dems were complaining to the local newspapers, these liberals are getting coverage. You're telling people there's a liberal party still going and you're explaining it's Eurocritical. And we had sort of some, you know, liberal Democrats, I thought they were going to go and slash their wrists. I thought they were having a little fallout. Um, but we got a lot of coverage in the West Country, but that wasn't the case in other regions. So it's a very mixed bag. And um, that's true also post-elections. Um, some of the media clearly have their own agendas and some media are more open. I mean, uh, an example I give you, uh, we have a massive campaign against a cycling lane that literally destroyed our shopping area and was totally needlessly wide a more modest cycle lane could being put in. Uh, we got incredibly little coverage from the Liverpool Echo on the issue and some of the coverage was distorting our message. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, the Daily Mail gave us tremendous coverage as part of their campaign about looking how cycle lanes were almost counterproductive. They were actually reducing the access for public transport and, and undermining shopping areas. So it's always hit and miss. And you, we just look for the opportunities and take more opportunities that come along. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the elections as well. And when it comes to sort of your history with election results, you had a, a much larger field of candidates for 2019 than 2017. Um, your pers- when you've stood before, your kind of your personal, obviously you're in a, a very safe Labour seat of Liverpool West Derby, but you found that that kind of decreased a bit as well. What is a good result for you? And, and in terms of you know building on 2019, few quite I've got a lot of candidates, but obviously you know you're talking of sort of around the one percent margin for a lot of people. What what would be a good result be for you next time out? Well, um, I'm I think it will depend on. What happens with the other major parties? I think the truth is, and we all like to think it isn't, smaller parties depend on on how some of the major parties are not performing, sadly. Um, But the issue for me and for the Liberal Party, I think our future real growth is by campaigning in local elections because, one, they're winnable. Two, we have a brand that people recognise is a very distinctive contribution. And the Liberal Party's strength has been local elections. And I think we need to build up on those if we're being realistic about what's achievable. We have got, since the last general election, um, some incredibly really good new members. And I'm feeling very encouraged that we've got some members in places like Yorkshire and everything who hadn't been involved with the Liberal Party before. Um, some of our members in, in Merseyside hadn't been active in politics before have have really tasted the the uh, the blood they've got involved they've had a go and they've risen to the occasion very very well you know and i think of my colleagues who stood in sort of sefton area would never stood for years in and angela did incredibly well and really enjoyed being a good candidate there um so i think our growth will organically grow with local elections uh over the last month our team in Liverpool have been campaigning in areas like Old Swan and West Derby Village, adjoining Tubrook Stronghold. And um, in a by-election Old Swan, um, we really did excel ourselves. Uh, we actually got second place when the whole Lib Dem machine in a former Lib Dem ward came third. Uh, we had a great candidate there, Mick, 
and we made a big campaign and we made it a clear image of where we were at and who we were and people responded whilst we have probably and in manpower and money probably about a quarter of the resources the Lib Dems put in to that by-election we came a clear second place in West Derby we've been campaigning out got a tremendous response the last couple of months over some sort of local issues and um, I think that's where our growth will be I know my colleagues in uh, Cornwall have made a tremendous investment. They've created a, a liberal club in um, Falmouth, Cranbourne, and that's given them a real platform uh, for some community activity in a very positive way as political profile. The resources are a really interesting thing with, the small, with any small party because unless you are fortunate enough to effectively be a kind of millionaire's plaything or or what have you, or you, you happen to be a conglomerate of businessmen or something, you tend to be picking on what you have yourself. And how, in terms of resources, how does the Liberal Party get by? Does it does it rely on its members? It doesn't have a, a big, shady conglomerate in the Cayman Islands looking after it, I presume? Well, um, I've got to say, I've, I've, I've had a look under my floorboards and I couldn't find any shady conglomerates, but, you know, we all live in hope. Um, but we do depend. We A lot of members make a lot of contribution, cash-wise, and pay their own way. We do have some national support for candidates who want to test the water. Uh, we've run some very good trial schemes and trialling new sort of leaflets and leafleting in areas where we haven't got a profile yet. And that was one of the reasons we made progress in, certainly in Old Swan. So really pleased. We do depend on people's resources, but, you know, uh, if there are any donors out there, you know, the account's looking always welcome to have any contributions. But the biggest contribution we make is actually people's time. People's yeah. time and talking with someone doesn't cost a, lot of, cost a lot of money, although a little intro flyer always helps. Just talking to people, writing to the local newspapers, pick up the telephone to radio phone-ins. You can make progress with quite a modest spend. And I do find, if I be honest, um, the Conservative Party has a tremendous budget in Liverpool. They produce some enormous expenditure and cut no ice at all. Um, you can have the greatest PR machine, but if you don't have a message that means anything to anyone, money don't count. No, absolutely. And this is the thing, isn't it, when it boils down to time as well. I wanted to ask about yourself in terms of what, you know, how you juggle it as as your position in the party and, and the sort of time you can dedicate to it. Is it the sort of thing where you have maybe one day a week or little dra- dribs and drabs here and there? How do you find it with uh, with other stuff that you have going on? Uh, again, to be honest, I find my work as a local councillor and managing community charity and a trustee or a finance officer for one of some local churches takes a lot of time and I'd like to give more time to my role as president of the Liberal Party. I'll be absolutely upfront on that. And it is sometimes hard to juggle all the the activities you've got on and prioritise what you need to do. I'm also pleased that I've got a couple of colleagues in Joe and Billy in my own ward who are increasingly uh, stepping up to the table and taking on tasks and activities that they may a year ago not thought of doing, like some of the media activities as well as the, the casework. Uh, we have a very good organised community charity here, which actually overlaps with some of our political work, as in the community side of our political work. So, yeah, it's a stressful 
work routine. We all have our strengths and weaknesses as individuals, including me. But I've got some tremendous Liberal Party officers like Steve Graham, Paul and Anne Bradshaw, who've got a lot of uh, political experience. And I'm feeling very in election. A lot of people come forward uh, with a lot of of experience, tested the water and did really well and are building on that experience. So I'm feeling quite encouraged. A few weeks later, I got Steve back on the phone to discuss how he's setting the party up for the election period ahead and to ask that all-important question of why bother. We believe all our politicians and all our elected officers, whether at the parish council or city mayor, should operate with conscience and merit. And this idea that everybody should be... Well, I think the Labour Party operates on the basis of collective stupidity. And they've all got to do what the big boss says. And, and this is a different style of relationship. Um, I don't go into a council debate and tell my two colleagues, Joe and Billy, what they should vote on. We discuss what our view is. But we go into the public debate and listen to the merits of the argument. Um, a classic example, going back to liberal history, Campbell Bannerman was a liberal prime minister during the legalisation of trade unions debate. He listened to the merits of the Labour Party amendment on part of his bill, and he actually was a Liberal Prime Minister and voted for it. Um, and, this, and this is what's lacking in British politics. Too many politicians are playing, we're not going to support them because it's not our suggestion. And, and very little are looking at the merits of debate and taking views from other people and taking them on board. And I think that's exactly where there's a difference. We go into council meetings and go into debates and listen to find, try and find common ground and weigh up the merits of issues, not, um, you know, this tribalistic, we've got to vote everything against them because we're the opposition, even though we haven't got a clue what we're going to do, and we're government, we'll probably do it anyway. I found that as a theme over a number of small parties, this sense of, of not really having a whip. Obviously, you know, with MPs, they're in Parliament, that's kind of how they make sure everyone votes in the same way. But for you guys, I suppose, is that an advantage of being a smaller party? No, no. When we, were in the, when we had the Liberal government, 1904, we practised liberalism. And we took issues from... I mean, the Liberal Party was a junior partner. If I'd be absolutely honest, it wasn't with the Liberal Party. Several of the trade union members sat as Liberal, like the Durham Miners. But the Liberal Party have always had a tradition of conscience. It's where Liberal democracy came from. It's fundamental to our viewpoint that politicians are not there as delegates. We're not the communist Kimmel Song regime where everyone's got to do what the big boss says. Um, we're Liberals. And the whole point of parliamentary debate is to evaluate the debates, evaluate the policy, and then make a decision. Now, if you have party whips, then you're actually undermining the whole point of representative democracy. That's interesting as, as, as you take it, because as I was saying, a lot of, I think a lot of um, other parties might take it as a sense of you know, showing their trust, but I suppose for you that's more of a, a, a no, philosophical it's a sense, isn't it? It's, yeah, fundamental liberalism, isn't it? Collective stupidity, where everything's <laughs> got to do what the majority boss says, they've got to jump. Um, and that's what, I mean, now we see the Labour Party drilling that down to the national executive says you in Liverpool aren't fit to select one of your three councillors with your three most key senior councillors are not fit for office I mean why don't they just say we think two of them are crooks and just say it I um, mean if that's the case well spit it out um, but now they're saying you should elect 
two councillors who have probably just got political nappy rash. So what's uh, what's a good result then as we sit here now with, in terms of percentage vote and all that sort of stuff? Is that the sort of thing that you're looking at or are you just looking at maybe, you know, generally being part of the debate and hearing people, you know, get, oh, get attuned to your views? Certainly, I think um, because of our campaigning on what we call practical environmental issues, not a, I mean, we've got a classic example. We've got a cycle lane in Tubrook that blocks all the traffic, increases air pollution, are blocked in emergency services because someone wants to tick the artificial green box, actually destroy the environment through it. Um, I think because of we've got a more pragmatic, hands-on, listen-to-the-people approach, we will have a dramatic increase in the Liberal vote, both in the mayoral elections and in the local elections. I think we'll see some fundamental changes in the city. I think I think people... I mean, I put it up... Uh, this week I've had pledges from three Labour Party members to vote for us in the local elections and the mayoral elections. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to talk about as well about... Um, the party as a whole, because it feel, I, was, I was trying to email various people to to have yeah. a chat and stuff, and I, I must admit I didn't get much back. And I wondered if is there perhaps a sense because as you you know the the, the Liverpool stuff that seems like the maybe a, a tight knit group, and I wondered whether it, it feels like as if it's more perhaps very regional in terms of your party and and okay. in terms of having a, an overall sense of you know there's the leader and then there's all of the rest of it. Is it perhaps more the case with the Liberals that you are? several regional groups I mean actually the foundation of the Liberal Party back in the 1880s was a federation of local associations Um, and you're absolutely right it was never built up as a sort of central party imposed down it was a coming together of lots of liberal and radical associations to form a national federation so we've always had this attitude of the locals know what's best for them and they know what the issues are in their locality so it's, it's about the way we operate. Um, and, you know, that has strengths and weaknesses, I accept that. But we, yes, it is very much a sort of, um, very much grassroots upwards approach to politics. In terms of one, one area of confidence that you have for the party for the next sort of year ahead and one area of concern that you might have for the party for the year ahead? I'm on confidence. Um, certainly, uh, I know our Cornish colleagues are breaking into new territory and building a network of support throughout. Um, certainly in Liverpool, we're making great strides, hitting the public issues, um, hitting a bit in tune with what I call pragmatic politics. Not, we've got to make token gestures on green policies. We're actually looking at real issues about enhancing community buildings, providing you know road networks and cycle networks based on consultation, not just imposed on people. And... I think we're hitting all the tick boxes that community respect. During the COVID crisis, um, our work as a community charity here, we've been delivering hampers out to about 450 households uh, right round the clock. Um, so I think people like our sort of community hands-on approach, and I think that's going to pay dividends. We always have the biggest problem, uh, and it always still is a problem, of people confused Liberal and Liberal Democrats. And I wish the sectors just changed the name again, back to the SDP or whatever they were. Um, it's our biggest problem. My, my concern is still the public still sees Liberal and Liberal Democrats as interchangeable. And that, that is our biggest dilemma. Um, you know, and I'll share that up front. And that's, uh, you're not willing to budge in that sort of brand aspect, are you? That's very much your, your kind of raison d'etre is to maintain your, your Liberal well, sort of front, isn't it? Oh, well, the, the name is on the tin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there's no point 
selling an orange as a banana. Um, and, and that's our basis and we stuck to it and, and I think we stuck to our principles very clear cut. And, uh, but it does give us a, you know, this is our biggest drawback. Final question then for, for this episode then is for, for you yourself this is and, and in terms of, you know, whether it's a, a particular cause or, or a, a, a who or a what or what is it that you do for, why do this for, why bother be in the Liberal Party and, and try and push its cause? It's, it's an outlook. It's an outlook on life and it's based on individual conscience, it's based on concern for the community and a sense of justice and People have tried to pigeon me whole as being a gay councillor. Well, I would take the view is I'm a councillor as a liberal who believes in equal rights, and I just happen to be gay. And, and, and that's the same way. I, I happen to have a burning sense of liberalism that everybody should be treated with equality, dignity, and there's a sense of community. And I don't find the major parties do that. They treat people as voting blocks they're entitled to. The Liberal Party bear many of the hallmarks of the small parties I've been chatting to throughout this series. Their battle to have their identity recognised on its own merits will forever be obstructed by the crowded marketplace they inhabit. And yet, there is a clear gap in the market for their socially liberal, Eurosceptic, community-first approach that will resonate in a number of different parts of the country. People like Steve and the others I've spoken to over the course of this series are emblematic of the dogged determination and clear vision that is utterly vital to leading a small party. Most of the parties their size will fade away and the majority of those that survive will be forced to settle for serving local communities or advancing their causes in the hope they reach the mainstream. But I think to look down on that as a waste of time is to forget that this sort of public service makes a real difference to people's lives and that these parties play a fundamental role in the great marketplace of ideas that drives our democracy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Why Bother Podcast. I've been Mark Mayo and you can follow the show on Twitter at why underscore bother underscore pod. Check out earlier episodes in the series with the Yorkshire Party, Animal Welfare Party and Wessex Regionalists. And I hope to be back with you again soon.